0: Hey guys, Kay here from The True Crime Couple. We are so excited to be back from our holiday hiatus. However, we have a little bit of a problem with our new recording equipment. This is the old equipment that I'm using right now. We kind of lost our whole entire episode for episode 42. So we didn't want to just leave you high and dry before we release the episode on Friday, which is in two days. So we decided to give you a sample of one of our Patreon episodes that we released during our holiday hiatus. So yes, it will be introduced as our Patreon episode, but please know that the Patreons will be getting another bonus episode before the month is out. And if you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, here's a sample of something that we do. So this is a little bit of a shorter episode than we're used to doing, It's on Arliss Perry. She was a student at Stanford during the 1970s, and her unsolved crime baffled police for a very long time. But we got some new information, and that leads to the amazing conclusion of the episode that we gave to our Patreon supporters. So thanks, everyone, for holding out for us. We know it's frustrating. So that episode that we said we would release as episode 42, will now be episode 43, and the Arliss Perry episode is going to take its place. We're so happy to be back, and thank you for being patient. We hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, and here's to 2019 being a really great year. Thanks, guys.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment.
0: We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey everyone, we just want to welcome you to the second Patreon episode that we have for you during our little holiday hiatus that we're taking. And we hope you just listened to the first episode that we released, which was the Dungeons and Dragons murder. D&D. Yes. And we have another case for you, which is a little different because it is from 1974. So we're definitely pulling out some old school cases for our Patreon listeners. We just want to take the time to thank you for making 2018 a really exciting year for us. We cannot thank you enough for supporting us, whether it's a dollar or $15. It really means a lot that any amount of money that you are earning you're deciding to give to us and we really appreciate it and we like the fact that you guys reach out to us and talk to us all the time it's like we've become a little bit of a true crime family and i really like that and i appreciate any advice or constructive criticism you guys have to offer us because it's good to know how we can make things better for you our supporters
1: and don't forget also possible cases that you'd like us to cover. We love that too.
0: Yes, please. We have a list of cases that we're going to cover in the future, and anytime you make a suggestion to us, we are going to definitely put it up on that list because if it's something you guys want to hear, we're definitely going to do it because we want to do that for you. And we, it's our sign of appreciation.
1: Absolutely. And you guys drive us. You know, we we you know, you keep us going. So
0: Yeah. This so is, this is for you guys. Hell yeah. All right. So Let's get to the case of Arliss Perry. Arliss and Bruce Perry had the world in their hands in 1974. The couple were high school sweethearts back in their hometown of Bismarck, North Dakota. Right after graduation, Bruce headed to California to attend Stanford University. For a year, the couple tried to live long distance. But in 1974, it was a lot harder than it is today. Bruce couldn't stand being apart from Arliss and she felt the same. He proposed to her during his freshman year of college, and the two were married the next summer. Next year, when he was headed back to California for his second year at college, he would be bringing his wife with him. Arliss was excited to leave North Dakota. She knew that her quiet town in North Dakota was nothing compared to the social and political movements that were taking place on Stanford's campus. She couldn't wait to be a part of the protests, the demonstrations, and the sit-ins. If the two newlyweds could make a difference, it was now. The world was changing. Nixon had just resigned due to the Watergate scandal a month after their wedding, and the couple believed that with continued pressure from the public, maybe the United States would pull out of the war in Vietnam. Arliss was even thinking about joining the Women's Sports League that Bruce had told her about, and it was a part of the campus's controversial Women's Liberation League. It's a pretty exciting time to be there. And she was really excited to leave North Dakota and and start living her life.
1: Small a uh, small woman in a big city, you know. Yeah.
0: So soon their hopes turned into a reality and the nineteen year old newlyweds settled nicely into campus living. The young couple lived in Quillen Hall, located in Escondido Village, which were high rise apartments. Now, while Bruce was a full time student, Working towards his pre med, Arliss worked as a secretary at the law firm of Spieth, Blyce, Valentine, and Klein. For two months, they lived in what seemed to be the epicenter of change in the United States. Arliss called home and discussed the excitement she felt and how independent she felt she was becoming. However, the dreams for this couple would come to a very abrupt end. On the night of October twelfth, 1974, Arliss and Bruce were taking a walk around campus when the two got into an argument. The argument was really a continued one from earlier in the day. Something silly about the tire pressure on the couple's car. And things got heated. Arliss told Bruce that she wanted to go off on her own. She was going to go to the nearby church and pray. She was referring to the church the couple frequented on campus. The Stanford Memorial Church. Bruce allowed her to go to the church, and she headed back to the couple's apartment. This was something that happened before, often when the couple got into disagreements. Arliss would seek solace in the walls of the church. She told Bruce that it always calmed her down, and it was her place of peace. It was a little before midnight when Arliss went into the church, and it was a little after midnight that the security guard closed it down. The church was quiet. And when he quickly looked around he couldn't see anyone so he locked the doors and continued on his rounds back in his apartment bruce was beginning to worry about his wife usually when the couple got into a fight and arliss went to the church she would come back in an hour or so but now it was coming up on 2 a.m and although it was saturday bruce knew how unusual this was the couple were not partiers they were focused on their goals Bruce decided that he had given Arliss enough time to cool down, so he went to go check on her. When Bruce got to the church, he found all the lights off, and when he tried to look in the windows, he couldn't see anything. He decided to drive around campus for a while and look for his wife. He thought that maybe she had taken a walk further around campus. When Bruce Perry returned home around 3 a.m., he called the Stanford Police Department to report his wife as missing Police took the missing person's report very seriously, and a mass search of the campus was conducted, not only by the Stanford police, but also by the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office. It's very unusual for 1974, so it seems like they really were looking for her. The church was approached again, but for some reason the church doors were not opened, and the place of worship was not searched. Despite the fact that this is the last place Bruce had said she went, So I thought that was weird that investigators chose not to kind of search the the church. Maybe it was a respect thing. I don't know. But the church wasn't opened. The next time the church doors were opened again was just before 6 a.m. by Steve Crawford, the same security guard and former member of the Stanford Police Department. He was the one who locked up the church just after midnight the night before. But this time he found something he hadn't seen the night before. It appeared that the door of the west side of the church was open it looked like someone had broken it from the inside in order to get out when crawford entered the church it looked the same as it always did in the morning the bright light from the morning sun shone strongly through the stained glass windows making colorful patterns dance through the pews and across the altar from the tiles to the rafters the room embodied serenity a peace during these crazy times But the world's cruelest juxtaposition lie at the center aisle of the church on that quiet morning. It was the body of Arliss Perry. It was clear that the sanctuary she sought on that Saturday night turned into her own private hell. Crawford immediately called the Stanford police. They needed to come immediately. Something really awful had happened to that missing girl, he told them. Nothing could prepare police for what they were about to witness. Instead of a full congregation that Sunday morning, the Stanford Memorial Church saw a full house of crime scene investigators, detectives, and one distraught, screaming husband. Arliss Perry had been murdered and brutalized. The 19-year-old girl was naked from the waist down. She had a candlestick pushed under her blouse, stuck in her bra. She was badly beaten, with bruises all over her body. She had been molested with a three-foot candlestick which had been left inside of her. But that hadn't been what killed her. The death of the woman had been the result of a blow from a five-inch ice pick, which she still had protruding from the back of her head. There were also signs of strangulation marks around Arliss's neck. This was a tragedy that the campus was not prepared for. Who was capable of committing the most brutal murder that Stanford had ever seen? And were they going to strike again? The campus was up in arms about this murder. Stanford was beginning to look like a dangerous place to be. In less than two years, there had been four murders, including the one of Arliss Perry. In three of those murders, women were the victims. The first was 21-year-old Leslie Perlov, a law librarian, who was found strangled to death in February of '73. The next was the stabbing of David Levine in September of 73, on his way to the undergraduate library on campus around 2 a.m. After the first two murders, people began to suspect that the theory proposed by San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito might be true. His theory was that there was a death cult working in Southern California, known as the Death Angels. He claimed that they were the ones responsible for the zebra killings in San Francisco, So what they were thinking was the Death Angels, who was a group that was responsible for the zebra killings in San Francisco, um, were the ones who were also responsible for the killings in Stanford. Okay. That's what he was saying. The fourth slaying was that of 21-year-old Janet Taylor, who was visiting a friend on campus. She was strangled to death while hitchhiking home. This is after the murder of Arliss Perry. Uh, This was a large deal on campus as Taylor was the daughter of the former athletic director of the college. Oh, wow. Yeah. So of course we know now in retrospect that the death angels were not a cult. They were a group of four black male Muslims who referred to themselves as such in their racially motivated killing spree. The death angels were responsible for 15 deaths and eight more attempted murders that we know of. They claim that they were responsible for more, but They have never been officially connected to these four murders, but law enforcement did not know this and the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department began their investigation into the murder of Arliss Perry and one of the main suspects was the Death Angels. They chose to start in the most feasible place at home before they went into the whole satanic cult route, which is smart. Thank God. It is smart. Yeah. So Bruce, of course, is going to be the first suspect, right? The husband always did it. And although he was unbelievably distraught, they had to start asking him questions. He readily is going to take a polygraph test, which he passes with flying colors. Even Arliss's family was very adamant that they did not believe that Bruce was responsible for the murder. Um, Especially to think the way that she was murdered was horrific.
1: Oh, yeah sure
0: insane um so at this crime scene the investigators were lucky enough to be able to recover two pieces of evidence the first was traces of semen found near arliss's body on a kneeling pillow that she had been using the second was a palm print found on one of the candles in 1974 investigators had better luck working with the palm print as evidence versus the semen sample as dna technology was barely a thought process The print could not be matched to either Perry or Crawford, who was also considered a suspect because he found the body. Investigators seemed to have hit a wall. They couldn't connect Arliss's murder with the others in the area, and they would not connect anyone who had seen her that night with the palm print. They were at a loss on how to solve the horrific murder. The police chose to turn their attention to other people who were in or around the church at the time of the murder maybe somebody saw something. Seven people could be associated with visiting the church around the time the murder might have taken place. Six of them were identified. The seventh, a man who was described as having sandy blonde hair, about 5'10", medium build, and the detail was added that he was not wearing a watch, which is a little weird, but whatever, that's what was noticed. The man was seen by a passerby. And they said that it looked like the man was about to enter the church, but was nervous to do so. It was that piece of evidence that would be the last clue that was ever given to investigators regarding the case. Unfortunately, like so many others, the case of Arliss Perry went cold. But the brutality of this crime and where it took place caused it to never be forgotten, which resulted in many theories over the years. And the interest of another serial killer. Of all the theories surrounding the grotesque murder of Arliss Perry, only two have stood the test of time, although most believe that they can be disproven. The first is that the murder was committed at the hands of a satanic cult, and this stems from where Arliss was killed, in a church, the way her body was posed, and the use of the candle and the ice stick. America was not yet in the midst of its satanic panic, but I will admit that If there had been a satanic cult operating in the world, they would have staged the body the way this body was staged. I mean, it was absolutely horrific to do something like that to somebody who is seeking peace in a church is probably the most horrific, violent, evil thing that could be done.
1: And the candle kind of mocks the fact that she was
0: there for a religious person. yeah, Yeah, right. The satanic cult murder has a few offshoots, so you have to bear with me here. One theory is the cult was operating in North Dakota and followed them to the campus to throw law enforcement off of their trail. However, no satanic cult was ever found to be operating near North Dakota. This is despite the claim made in the book called The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry, who wrote the book, of course, in the midst of the satanic panic. The book is going to make the claim that both Charles Manson and David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, had connections with the satanic cult that was working through the United States, but was stationed in North Dakota. Nothing has ever been verified from that book. This is without a doubt a far, far reach. The main pieces of evidence that Terry uses to tie Berkowitz to the murder of Arliss Perry is is the fact that Berkowitz sent a book to a recipient in North Dakota who was a fan of him. So, of course, serial killers always attract fans. Berkowitz had an avid fan in North Dakota, who he sends a book to. And in the margin lines of the book, it appears that Berkowitz wrote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. In being asked about this, it's pretty clear that Berkowitz took an interest in the murder of Arliss Perry. But when police went to talk to him about it, they found out that Berkowitz was just really into who did it. He was trying to figure it out, too. He thought the case was interesting, but he had nothing to do with it. He sent the book to a fan, not a cult, and that was kind of nixed. So that's how that offshoot has kind of been disproven. Okay. Okay. As for the book claiming that Charles Manson was a part of a satanic cult that had originated in North Dakota, that's not true whatsoever. Um, It just, it was this idea of this book that came out during the satanic panic that was going to try and make that connection, and the connection just wasn't there. It wasn't substantiated, so. Okay. The second theory is that maybe the wrong woman was killed. In a very strange coincidence, there was another Bruce Perry at Stanford University. Arliss and her husband did not find this out until, forgetting her new number, she asked the operator to connect her to Bruce Perry's line on Stanford campus. And when she got through, she realized she was not talking to her husband. In fact, the man told her that this happened on a number of occasions where he got members of her and Bruce's family calling him. We learn more from this in a letter that Arliss wrote home, responding to the fact that her mother, too, had made the same mistake. This is a part of the letter she wrote on September 24th, 1974, weeks before her murder. I had to laugh about your call to Bruce Perry. Mrs. Perry made the same mistake. She called them, too. But the strange part of it is that his name is not only Bruce Perry, but Bruce D. Perry. Same as my Bruce. And not only that, but it's Bruce Duncan Perry. Same exact name.
1: That is very odd.
0: Yeah. And he attends Stanford University. And he also just got married this summer. What? Isn't that crazy? That is. One thing, though, is his wife's name isn't Arliss. Anyway, next time you get the urge to call, the number is, obviously I'm not There's no number available anymore. This time, I guarantee you'll get the right Bruce Perry. So was it possible that this couple was the target and not Arliss and Bruce Perry? Unfortunately, life, though, would not give the family any answers, and Bruce was forced to move on. In the memory of his murdered wife, he continues to work towards the degree that he promised her he would get. Bruce would go on to become a clinician and researcher, in children's mental health and neurosciences after studying both at Northwestern and Yale University. He is internationally recognized as the authority on children in crisis. Bruce Perry never married again. Isn't that so sad?
1: That is sad, but that just goes to show you- He's an
0: amazing doctor. He does so much for kids.
1: What an amazing man and an amazing husband that he was. I
0: know, it's so cute. Isn't it? It could make- make you cry? Make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. It's adorable. For over 40 years, Bruce Perry and Arliss's family would not know what happened to the beautiful young 19 year old girl that they loved so much. However, in 2016, the semen sample found at the scene was sent in for further DNA testing. There was a match. The DNA matched someone who was arrested in 1992 for trying to sell stolen Western-style bronze statues and books that had originally gone missing in the 1970s from Stanford University. The man's name, Stephen Blake Crawford, the security guard, who claimed to have locked up the church the night of the murder and found the body the next morning. It was the security guard. What? Yeah. The reason why the palm print didn't match was because a rookie police officer was working the case the night of the murder. And he had touched the candle. So the reason the palm print didn't match Crawford was because it was a police officer who was too nervous about being fired that night. So he didn't tell anyone that it was his palm print
1: that's crazy yep oh my god that is insane Mm -hmm. but that also shows you that guy's character so he committed the crime called up and said hey you need to come oh he opened um oh my god
0: I know I can't even so he did lock up the church but when he locked up the church it was still with Perry in it and the reason why the door looked like it had been broken from the outside was because the killer was already in the church when he locked it in from the inside
1: holy shit that is insanity I know
0: So police are going to bring Crawford in for questioning. They said that they were just trying to reinvestigate this cold case, but Crawford got spooked. When police went to the man's San Jose apartment in late June of 2018, Crawford, before they came in, shot himself in the head. In his apartment, investigators found a suicide note that was dated back in 2016 The first time they questioned him again about the case. They also found a ripped off cover of the book, The Ultimate Evil. Remember, that was the one that was about, you know, was Berkowitz involved in the Arliss Perry case. Wow. The family of Arliss Perry never stopped hoping for justice. Neither did Bruce Perry. And finally, now it was theirs.
1: That is a really great story. I'm even shocked. I like that. It's a
0: good case, right? Very good. Just for our patreons, got it. <laughs> awesome.
1: That's that's crazy. What a twist! Because the whole time I didn't even think that he would, but that ju- uh, that that guy did it. But that just goes to show you, though, that the majority of like the public. And it's just like a, you know a regular civilian, right? Right. We always feel that we can trust someone that's been an ex police officer or a retired police officer. We can yeah. trust security guards. Right. We can we can trust people who uphold the law or or whatever the case may right. be. But sometimes, very very small chance, it could be a killer still.
0: Right. Sometimes people in positions of power abuse that power, and it's so sad that that had to happen. Another thing that makes me question things about this case is the brutality of that murder. I mean, obviously it was an impulse, right? He didn't plan on doing that. He, she just happened to walk in and he took advantage of a situation. So it wasn't too planned out. It was an impulse kill, but you can't tell me that from 1974 till 2018, when this man killed himself, that he never committed another act of violence, or even before 1974, that that was his first time.
1: Well, usually, I mean, if if someone commits one crime, the likelihood, well, murder, the likelihood of them doing it again is so much greater.
0: Right. Because they finally
1: carried out something they know they can get away with it. So you're right, it is. It's possible, especially in California. And that might
0: be the reason why he killed himself was because, I mean, that alone would give him life in prison, but it, maybe he there was a lot of stuff he was hiding. Also,
1: you know, something that I don't think we touched on, and this is actually kind of interesting, right? We talked about the Satanic, uh, satanic Panic a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Him being a retired police officer, it might have given him the idea to do that to her body. Well,
0: no, the Satanic Panic wasn't happening in 1974. It was happening when the ultimate evil came out in the 80s.
1: Okay, but even so, like it's possible maybe he had some sort of insider knowledge or something to where maybe if he planned it to
0: look that way, it would take the heat off of him maybe? Well, I think what it was, it's definitely a rage, right? Yeah. So, now this is just me going completely out on a limb, but the social climate of Stanford during this time was that of liberation and protest and... That's what I think the student body of Stanford embodied. Change in the world, the fight against the government to stop the war in Vietnam, hippie movement. And now here we have a retired police officer who may not entirely agree with the student body, but he's there and he's a security guard on campus. So he may have an aggression against the student body, which he's going to take this aggression out on this young girl. That might have caused his frustration.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, actually. Because of- Yeah, I couldn't
0: find any records on whether or not he was in Vietnam or any of that. But I mean, if you have, especially when the veterans came back and they weren't respected, it could have caused an aggression. I don't know. But I think that that might have played a little bit of a part in it, is the environment on campus. And this I mean, is what made these people deserve. I truly deserve. don't
1: think that, like what you just said, I don't think it's a stretch. I think it's a, it's a very firm possibility. Yeah. Just because he, there, yes, people kill just to kill, but some most of the time there's there's a motive or or there was an aggression to gain here or right or, so I don't know.
0: Obviously, it was also a sexual crime because there well, sure. was yeah you know bad stuff that happened, but this was a good one, and we're glad that we brought it to you and i'm glad that the family got justice and that there are people in the world like bruce perry who's adorable he's the man he is all right guys we're glad we brought you two patreon episodes we hope you enjoy and we will be back with a really great episode on january 13th all right bye guys thank you so much
1: bye guys